Good evening. Welcome to week four of our three-week series <laughs> of a prophetic perspective. As you can see, time management was not one of my one of my strong suits. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know me, if you're new here, my name is Mark Matthews, and I've been uh, privileged to teach the last three weeks on a uh, prophetic perspective based on Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. So we're going to continue that perspective tonight, but we're going to go in a little different uh, direction. But first, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this time and opportunity to come and present ourselves before you, Lord, to worship you, Father, in song and in praise and in thanksgiving. And now, Father, we prepare to worship you in the study of your word. I just pray that you would go with each one of us before us. Uh, go with me, Lord, that I can uh, speak and present your word uh, with clarity, Lord, and be with each one here, Lord, that we can just hear your word and then apply it as, uh, as needed to our lives. Father, we thank you again for your presence. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who truly is the teacher of all things. And we just ask you now to go before us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I sat down... Uh, and began writing tonight's message on Monday, <clears throat> I had not originally planned to cover half of it uh, in this teaching, but uh, the Lord seemed to have different ideas, and studies often seem to take on a, a mind of their own as to what path they're going to go down once you get started, and of course that's at the direction of the Holy Spirit. But what really was the catalyst to change it was some, some uh, comments I heard regarding some recent events uh, in the last week. And I want to start and make some comments regarding those events. Uh, this week in the Middle East, in response to a proposed nuclear agreement between the U.S. and Iran, a, uh, and that would lift some major economic um, sanctions against Iran and would also pause, not stop, not uh, end, but pause Iran's nuclear program an unusual alliance rose up uh, in opposition to that proposal. And that alliance consisted of France, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and of all nations, Israel. So that was amazing. Um, another, another news report um, that I heard, well, as, as much as the Saudis and the UAE hate Israel, they fear a nuclear Iran even more. And it was also reported uh, in some uh, news sources uh, last week that Saudi Arabia itself has purchased nuclear weapons and has them on order from Pakistan. So uh, basically the Middle East is a powder keg getting very near ready to explode. That was one item in the news. The other one on a different note uh, was earlier this week the Philippines was devastated but what has been called by many as the worst storm in history. That's, that's amazing. So your reading assignment from now until the Lord comes to take us out of here is Matthew 24. So just keep your Bibles open to that chapter. And actually that brings me to the part of my message I wasn't going to give tonight. Actually, we're going to read Matthew chapter 24 now. 
Uh, and I'm going to read it from the Amplified Bible, beginning in verse 3. Now, remember that uh, as we read this chapter, to remember this chapter is prophetic. And the things it addresses are not necessarily being presented in chronological order. So I'm going to go through here, and I'm going to be interjecting some commentary as we go through. So I hope the commentary will be beneficial to you. So let's start in uh, Matthew 24, uh, verse 3 I'm going to start in. And again, this is from the Amplified Bible. It says, while he was seated on the Mount of Olives, of course, he there is, is the Lord, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will this take place and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them. He said, be careful that no one misleads you, deceiving you and leading you into error. For many will come in on the strength of my name, appropriating the name which belongs to me. And they will be saying, I am the Christ, the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. And we know that the Antichrist will be the main one that does that. Verse 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. This next statement is very important. See that you are not frightened or troubled. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes. And here I would add typhoons and hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and other natural disasters. And it says, in place after place, all this is but the beginning, the early pains of the birth pains of the intolerable anguish. This clearly tells us that as the church we will suffer through some of these early catastrophes. So we need to prepare ourselves for that. Verse 9, Then they will hand you over to suffer affliction and tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This is beginning to take place in America. As I said, I think it was last week or the week before, for the first time in our history, we have an administration in Washington that is pursuing and aggressively anti-Christian agenda with the aim being to diminish Christianity. So this is taking place. Verse 10, And then many will be offended and repelled and will begin to distrust and desert him whom they ought to trust and obey and will stumble and fall away and betray one another and pursue one another with hatred. And I believe that the falling away here is the one prophesied in Second Thessalonians. 2, verse 3. Verse 11, And many false prophets will rise up and deceive and lead many into error. And the love of the great body of people, now note here, this does not say a great body of people. This says the great body of people, a specific body of people. And I believe this possibly is speaking to those who profess Christ but do not possess Christ. Christ. So this great body of people will grow cold because of the multiplied lawlessness and iniquity. Sin's going to run rampant here shortly. This next verse is one that always bothered me. Verse 13. But he who endures to the end will be saved. 
Has that bo ever bothered anybody else in here? That really bothered me because what does my enduring or anyone's enduring have to do with salvation? Because salvation is a gift. Enduring is a work. So I, I looked at this, and I've done studies on this, and what I found is that uh, most commentators don't comment on this verse at all. They just go right over it like it's not even there. Uh, so I'm going to give you Mark's interpretation of this verse tonight, and you can see if that may help you or maybe not. I think we really read this wrong, where he says, but he who endures to the end will be saved. I think we, 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 we make the emphasis on the endures to the end will be saved. I don't think that's what it means. I mean, I think it means uh, that who, those who do endure to the end will be the saved ones. I think that's the way it should be uh, bespoken. Uh, I believe that this is telling us that the only people who survive the tribulation and enter alive in the millennial kingdom are believers. All unbelievers will be killed by that time. Some also believe that the 144,000 will survive the tribulation and also enter into it. But I really believe that this really ties into the, uh, the goat and sheep judgment in the next chapter, Matthew 25. Because if you look at that, what it says there is that the righteous are judged and the unrighteous are judged. The righteous go into the kingdom prepared for them and the unrighteous go into uh, everlasting um, hell. Now, we know that that judgment is not the great white throne judgment because there will be no believers judged at the great white throne judgment. I believe that that judgment comes at the end of the tribulation but prior to the millennial kingdom where the believers and the unbelievers who made it through the tribulation will be judged. And if you read Matthew 25 and you see all those acts there, those are acts that people did in the tribulation. The good acts were done out of a love for Christ and for his people. The bad acts were done by unbelievers who did not believe. So I believe that between the, the tribulation and the millennial, there's a pause where this judgment takes place. And pauses are, are very common in the book of Revelation. So basically, I think this says that you are not saved because you endure. You can only endure because you are saved. I don't know if that helps anybody else, but it helped me because I'd struggled with that one for a lot of years. Verse 14, And this good news of the kingdom, the gospel, will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then will come the end. Now we go to verse 15, and now we're backtracking a little bit here. We've gone to the end of the tribulation, now we're going to backtrack. Says, so when you see the appalling sacrilege, that's the abomination that astonishes and makes desolate, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader take notice and ponder and consider and heed this. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down and go into the house to take anything. And let him who is in the field not return back to get his overcoat. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who have nursing babies in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. These verses above confirm that the focus of the tribulation will be centered on Israel. 
Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, affliction, distress, and oppression such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. And no, and never will be again. The effects of the tribulation will be felt worldwide. And if those days had not been shortened, no human being would endure and survive. No one would have made it alive into the millennium. But for the sake of the elect, God's chosen ones, those days will be shortened. Again, now this is talking about tribulation saints here. And he's talking about the chosen ones. Verse 23. If anyone says to you, that, I'm sorry, if anyone says to you then, behold, here is the Christ, the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and they will show great signs and wonders, so as to deceive and lead astray, if possible, even the elect, God's chosen ones. Again, speaking of tribulation saints. Verse 25. See, I have warned you beforehand. Prophecy, understanding prophecy is critical. Verse 26. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, the desert, do not go out there. If they tell you, behold, he is in the secret places or inner rooms, do not believe it. I often think of the Freemasons when I read that and these other secret societies. You know, they're telling you that we have this special knowledge. Verse 27. For just as the lightning flashes from the east and shines and is seen as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever there is a fallen body, a corpse, there the vultures or eagles will flock together. That verse is very hard to understand. This appears to be a figure of speech that would be understood in that time, but is unclear to us today. So a lot of people get hung up on that. Don't, don't, don't get hung up on that verse. It's just, I think it's just a figure of speech used back then. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and beat their breasts and lament in anguish. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and brilliancy and splendor. Of course, this, this language is right out of the book of Revelation. Verse 31. Again, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're going to backtrack here a little bit. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect, his chosen ones, from the four winds, even from one end of the universe to the other. From the fig tree learn this lesson. As soon as its young shoots become soft and tender and it puts out its leaves, you know of a surety that summer is near. So also, when you see these signs all taken together coming to pass, you may know of a surety that he is near at the very door. That that passage there again is speaking of the rapture. And it goes on. He says, truly I tell you, this generation, the whole multitude of people living at that same time in a def definite given period will not pass away till all these things uh, taken together take place. Now, 
<clears throat> Some people uh, attribute that generation to being the one that saw Israel restored. I'm not sure it means that. I think it possibly refers to the generation that enters the tribulation, that that generation will not pass away until all these things are done. But you can go either way on that one. Verse 35 says, Sky and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that exact day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And again, in these next passages, we're talking about the rapture. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For just as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, men marrying and women being given in marriage, until the very day when Noah went into the ark. And they did not know or understand until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And at that time, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the, at the hand mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Watch therefore. This is to us. Watch therefore. Give strict attention. Be cautious and active. For you do not know in what kind of a day, whether a near or a remote one, your Lord is coming. So he's telling us to be ready. You also must be ready, therefore, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. <clears throat> Who then is the faithful, uh, thoughtful, and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household? to give to the others the food and supplies at the proper time. Blessed, happy, fortunate, and to be envied is that servant whom when his master comes, he will find so doing. I solemnly declare to you, he will set him over all his possessions. This here is speaking of being joint heirs with Christ. Man, what a promise that is. He will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is delayed and is going to be gone a long time and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken, in other words, become like the world, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour of which he is not aware and will punish him, cut him up by scourging, and put him with the pretenders, the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here I think we can refer to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 for commentary on that. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wondrous wonders in your name? And then I will declare to him, and these are the seven most terrible words that will ever be spoken. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. That will be forever. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
These are heavy words. Now, all this does tie into the original topic that I wanted to present tonight. So let's do tonight's topic now. And that topic is, how should we, the Church of Jesus Christ, respond to all of this? First, the question, why did I originally pick Ezekiel 38 as the subject of the series? I think that should be obvious because it appears to be very, very close. Let's recap the series so far. In the introduction, I said that I believe that there are three worldwide wars prophesied in Scripture that are yet to be waged in human history. And I believe that the war described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the next major war to be fought in human history and that it is a war that will change everything. It's going to change the world. It also appears from current headlines that all the major players in this war are being positioned as we speak tonight. Quick review of sessions one through three. In session one, we did an introduction and background, and then we identified the nations that will be involved in the war described in Ezekiel. In session two, we looked at the war itself and then speculated on some possible results, some plausible scenarios that could come about as a consequence of that war. In session three, we looked into events Ezekiel prophesied as coming forth in the aftermath of the war. We also looked at the burden against Damascus and doing, I did a brief study of the other burdens mentioned in the book of Isaiah along with the one in the book of Nahum. From there, we looked into Psalm 83 to attempt to determine if it was a prophecy of an upcoming regional war in that area. We probably ended up raising more questions than we answered with that one, but I threw it out there for you guys. In the remainder of tonight's session, we're, we're going in a different direction from the first three sessions. Tonight, we're not going to address prophecy directly, although we will indirectly. Uh, but the main focus tonight will be on how we, the Church of Jesus Christ, should respond to prophecy. What should be our actions in light of prophecy? First, let's look at why we study prophecy. The main reason, which I covered in session one, is because Jesus told us to. Scripture is very clear that he holds us responsible for knowing the signs of the times that we are living in. And because I covered that aspect in session one, I'll not address it any further tonight. But there are several other reasons for us to study prophecy. I'm going to go over three of them. First, prophecy authenticates the Bible. Peter was an eyewitness of Christ, of Christ's ministry, and of Christ's miracles. Yet, in speaking of having confidence in God's word, he said in 2 Peter 1.19 that we have also a more sure word of prophecy. The prophetic accuracy of the Bible validates the Bible. Second, prophecy reveals the character of God which gives us confidence to trust God. Uh, Isaiah 46, 9 to 11 says this. God says this. He says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, 
saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Prophecy promotes our confidence in the trustworthiness of God. The third and final point I'm going to address tonight, and this is the one we'll concentrate on. Prophecy promotes holiness in the believer by giving us a high consciousness of eternity and an attitude of expectancy concerning the Lord's return. Philippians 3.20 tells us this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to this third point shortly. But before we go on, I want to throw out one caution. I'm a prophecy buff. I love prophecy. I really love prophecy. And as a prophecy buff, I need to keep one very important point in mind. Prophecy is not the focus of the Bible. Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is the focus of the Bible. Prophecy is merely a means by which to confirm the reliability of the Bible. We must not get so obsessed with prophecy that we lose sight of the central theme, which is the salvation of mankind. Now, concerning the things that we studied in the first three sessions, some critics, and yes, there would be critics of the way we studied those, would say that all those things we covered in those first sessions were nothing more than speculations, conjectures, presumptions, assumptions, etc. And we did make those based on what we saw when we tried to read between the lines. So in a sense, they would be right. But in defense, all of those speculations and assumptions, etc., were based on definitive prophecy from the word of God. So let's give the critics their due, and let's look at what God has given us in the form of definitive prophecy. Things that we know from God's word are going to come to pass. So I'm going to give you a, a list here. And of course the list obviously is, is going to have to be quite short because after all we're Christians and that means that we're, you know, backwards and stupid and pretty ignorant. Yeah, I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic there. But you know, that's the way the elites look at us. They really do. They look at us as being, <coughs> being that way. They don't think we know much. But then, how much do they know? They can't even get a website to work. So, <laughs> And besides, who cares what they think? Uh, most of them are going to go to hell anyway. And uh, I'm not the one that says that, by the way. It was Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.26, where he said, Not many wise in the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble have been called. So uh, if you have a problem, then uh, you can just uh, address that with Paul when you see him. Uh, and see, because I'm not the pastor, I can get away with stuff like that. I, I have a little more latitude. I mean, I might get in trouble with it, but I only have to answer to Zeke. <laughs> Zeke has to answer to God, so I got a lot more latitude than he does. But anyway, let's let's go over what we know from God's word that's going to come to pass. We know from God's word that the war of Ezekiel 38 will be fought. 
the rapture will take place. The Antichrist will be revealed. The 70th week of Daniel will begin. The times of the Gentiles will end. The tribulation will take place. The judgments will come forth. The 144,000 will be sealed. The uncountable multitude will be redeemed from the earth. The two witnesses will testify, be martyred, be resurrected, and then will be raised up into heaven. The covenant between Israel and the Antichrist will be made and then will be broken. The abomination of desolation will be committed. The great tribulation will result. The king of glory will return to the earth. Armageddon will commence. The marriage supper of the lamb will take place. The millennial kingdom will be established. Satan will be loosed. Uh, Gog and Magog will rebel. The great white throne judgment will take place. The last enemy death will be destroyed. Heaven and earth will dissolve in great fire. A new heaven and earth will be created. New Jerusalem will come down from heaven. The eternal kingdom will be established. And finally, all believers will spend eternity in paradise with God. Amen. Amen. That's what we do know. How's that for definitive prophecy? That should be enough for the critics. So what should our response be to knowing all of this? Well, with knowledge comes accountability. In 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11, speaking of just one of these prophecies, Peter asked the church a pertinent question. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away, and with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, Here's the question. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter says that the knowledge that this world is soon going to pass away should impact how we conduct ourselves in these last days. He is basically laying down a challenge to the believer, a challenge to live lives of righteousness. He is attempting to motivate believers to focus our um, efforts away from the world and unto things eternal, unto things that will last. I would paraphrase Peter's question this way. In view of all the prophecies that we just listed that we know will come to pass, what manners of persons ought we, the church, to be today? I believe that this question is even more pertinent now than it was in Peter's day. How long could we spend answering this question? I don't know. What, weeks, months, years, a lifetime? So tonight I want to make an attempt in answering that question, in part at least. And I want to begin the answer using the inverse of the question that Peter asked. Not asking what manner of persons ought we to be, but asking the question, what manner of persons ought not we to be? And I'm going to cover three points. First, we are not to be a fearful people. We are told in Scripture over and over again not to fear. Why? What does fear do? It weakens our faith and it paralyzes our actions. It makes us unprofitable workers for God. All through the Gospels, Jesus speaks the words, Do not fear, do not be afraid. 
So that is the message to the church. Do not be afraid, no matter what you may see coming. It can't touch us. Not in a spiritual sense, anyway. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Of all the people in the world today, we should be the most sane. Because we know and understand what is happening. The unbeliever doesn't have that advantage. And we, knowing what we know, know that we have nothing to, to fear, especially when we're in the presence of Jesus. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we are always in the presence of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews assures us with this statement, Hebrews 13:5. He said, for he himself, and there he's speaking of God, for God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And God keeps all his promises. We are completely secure in Christ. And there's probably at least a thousand verses that confirm that. That's the first one. Second, and what I'm about to say here would probably not be well received in some Christian circles. We are not to be a tolerant people. Oh, that doesn't sound politically correct. Well, you're right, it's not. But it's biblically correct. We must remember that we serve an intolerant God. I think we may lose sight of that at times. Exodus 20, verse 3 said this. You shall have no other gods before me. Period. End of discussion. And unlike Obama, when God says period, he means period. God is intolerant of anything that separates us from him. In Proverbs, God lists seven things he hates, seven things that he is intolerant of. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Let's look at that last one. Who could possibly spread more discord among the brethren than those false teachers that spread discord through false doctrines? A prime example of the kind of tolerance that allows the spread of this discourse can be found in the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Chapter 2, if you want to if you want to turn there. Chapter 2, starting in verse 18, speaks of the church of Thyatira, a church that lost its lampstand due to being too tolerant. We will focus on verse 20. Revelation 2.20 says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. This verse tells us that Thyatira lacked in zeal for sound doctrine. 
And because of that, they also lack in moral purity and in holiness of life. They lacked in their defense against the false teachings and immoral practices being promoted by Jezebel. Jezebel was teaching doctrines suggesting that the Christians could compromise with the world and still be fully faithful to Christ, and that is not so. But note one very important point here. Jesus does not condemn the Thyatirans for following these doctrines, nor for believing these doctrines. Scripture doesn't say that they did either one of those things. Jesus condemns the Thyatirans simply for allowing, for tolerating those doctrines to be taught. Just being tolerant of false doctrines can put one in great spiritual danger. First comes tolerance, then comes acceptance, then comes agreement. This is a strategy being used against Christians today by those who are pushing the homosexual agenda. Many Christians have already passed through the toleration stage. Still more are far into the acceptance stage, and some have already progressed into the agreement stage. It worked with the abortion agenda, and it appears to be working with the homosexual agenda as well. Today, many Christians place their social agenda above their worship and obedience to God. They do not wish to be thought intolerant. They tolerate drug use. They tolerate premarital sex. Uh, they tolerate homosexuality. They tolerate a great number of things. And the excuse they most often use, everybody is doing it. It is just the way the world is today. And they are right. It is the way the world is today. But it is not the way the church is to be today. God will not tolerate that among his people, and we must not tolerate that which God does not tolerate. For their tolerance, the Thyatirans lost their lampstand. The church of Thyatira no longer exists. The third and final point, <clears throat> we are not to be a compromising people. The church compromises a lot today. We are not to be a compromising people. The teaching of false doctrine leads to compromise. Compromise leads to indifference and apathy. Again, a prime example of this comes out of the book uh, of Revelation in the letter to the seven churches. This time in chapter 3, the letter to the church of Laodicea. And we'll focus on verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Man, you want the Lord saying that of us? I will vomit you out of my mouth. Wow. Reading the whole letter, you find that Laodicea had compromised away all of their spiritual values and riches. They had compromised on doctrine. They had compromised on righteousness. And they had compromised on truth. They had compromised away the righteousness of God in order to obtain things of comfort. They never challenged false teachers or false doctrines. They, uh, they never rebuked sin or corrected unrighteousness. Their attitude was that the church belonged to the people, and whatever the people wanted, it was their right to have it. 
In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said the church was to be both salt and light to the world. The Laodiceans were neither. The church was devoid of any spiritual value at all. They compromised to the point where they were merely lukewarm, and lukewarm became their comfort zone. This is how the liberal church is today, a church that has been compromised so much with worldly standards that they've become indifferent and apathetic towards the righteousness of God, and the world sees no difference in them. In the 1860s, D.I. Moody made this comment in one of his sermons. He said, The church is ineffective in the world because the world does not believe that the church believes what the church says it believes. In order for the church to be effective in the world, the church must be different from the world. These liberal churches think of themselves as the enlightened church, the modern thinking church, the seeker-friendly church. Talk of sin and the need for repentance is rarely, if ever, heard in them. But in reality, they are simply the compromised church, the church that would do anything to avoid controversy or risk any disturbance in the status quo. They are pathetically lukewarm and useful for nothing. And that is a sad commentary indeed. We must never be like that. We must not ever compromise with the world, especially in light of knowing what we know, but even more importantly, in light of knowing to whom we belong and to whom we will give account. When we were doing the, uh, when we were doing the uh, Kingdom of Heaven series in the summer, I had, a, I had a chance to watch a movie on television, and interestingly enough, the name of the movie was The Kingdom of Heaven. And it's not a Christian movie, it's a secular movie, and I'm not endorsing the movie or, or telling you to go see it. But uh, there was one point in that movie that really, really touched my heart. Um, a, synopsis, a short synopsis of the movie, it, The Kingdom of Heaven, of course, is Jerusalem, and it talks about the king of Jerusalem, who was the crusader king who liberated Jerusalem from Saladin and the Muslims. And this crusader king was very young, but yet he was dying of leprosy. So he was looking, this is the storyline, he was looking for a general to name general of his armies who would succeed him as king of Jerusalem. And he was looking for a righteous individual. And in this one scene, and again, this is a secular movie, but whoever wrote this scene, I'm going to tell you something, had to be a believer. They had to, they had to have insight, because in this scene, the king and the uh, the king and the young general are sitting playing a game of chess, and the king is discussing this with the young general, and the king says this to the young general. He says, "There will be many powerful men in your life, who will influence your life, but always remember that your soul is your own." And when you come before God, you will say, well, this one told me to do this, and I did this. And another told me to do thus, and I did thus. And to be virtuous was not convenient at the time. That will not suffice. And that really touched my heart, because I personalized that. And it was like God was saying to me, Mark, 
there are going to be many powerful circumstances that are going to influence your life. But always remember that your soul is your own. And this circumstance will tell you to do this, and you may do this. And this circumstance may tell you to do thus, and you do thus. And to be virtuous may not be convenient at the time. That will not suffice. And what hit me was standing before God and looking into those eyes of that one who went to that cross for me and hearing him say those words, Mark, you were taught better. You were learned better. You know better. That will not suffice. Am I afraid of losing my salvation? No. I can never lose my salvation. But I can certainly grieve God. And that is one thing I do not ever want to do. I know I will, but I sure am going to work to make sure it's infrequent. So these three things we ought not to be. We ought not to be fearful. We ought not to be tolerant of unrighteousness. We ought not to be compromising with the world. But what type of person ought we to be? Well, that's a list far too long to cover tonight. But one type of person we ought to be is a person living in the expectancy of the imminent return of our Lord, his return to redeem his church from the earth and bring it into heaven. In closing, I want to turn to some passages of scripture that Zeke taught on Sunday. And if you weren't here for that teaching, you need to go online and listen to it because it certainly gives us guidelines to live by. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 19. Peter says, therefore. Why, and you always ask when you see therefore, is what is that therefore, therefore? That therefore is because we know. So let's put that in there. Because you know, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, it is written, and we know it, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's works, then conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And that fear there means in uh, reverence of God. Knowing, see there's that word again, that knowing. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. <clears throat> so that completes our prophetic perspective, and I hope you all at least receive something of value from it. Again, this message tonight is nothing like the one I had originally planned or intended to give, but it is the one the Lord intended for me to give. Therefore, it is a much more profitable message. Would you guys all stand with me to pray? Peter asked the question, 
Knowing these things, what manner of people ought we to be? We answered that question just a little bit tonight. But that now begs a different question, a deeper question. The question now is, what manner of people will we be? And the answer to that question can only be found in each individual heart. Because after it's all said and done, the manner of people that we will be is the manner of people that we will choose to be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time and for the opportunity to present this series. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us through these difficult-to-understand passages. I pray that it was time profitably spent and that each of us received that which you had prepared for us to receive. I pray, Lord, that you would go before each one of us and help us, Lord, to live lives that are pleasing to you. Let your spirit lead us and guide us in all things. I pray your blessings on each one here. I pray you dismiss us in your name. We give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Prayer teams are down here, guys. If you need prayer for anything, don't leave here without it, especially if you need prayer for salvation.